Praise be Jesus Christ, and welcome back. We're in episode 24, season 4 of CarmelCast, and we're joined again, uh, Brother John Mary of Jesus Crucified. You're back with us again yeah. today, yes. and again, Father Michael Joseph of St. Therese. I'm Deacon Brother Pier Giorgio of Christ the King. CarmelCast is a production of the Institute of Carmelite Studies Publications. For more information, please visit our website at www.icspublications.org. So we've been beginning these episodes with a saying of light and love from the runnings of Holy Father, St. John of the Cross. It's my turn to pick one. So I picked uh, saying number 97. Uh, the soul that walks in love neither tires others nor grows tired. And I think, you know, in, in light of everything that we're called to do uh, by our constitutions and by the various min many ministries that we have and uh, the things that God calls us and the order calls us to do and the church calls us to do. Um, to think, you know, it, it, it may seem so burdensome and, and tiresome at times, but to, to remember always that, you know, things done with great love um, just provide the energy and provide, um, provide the, the ability to do these things. Mm. Um, and I know that, um, that I tire you guys very little. <laughs> so, <laughs> How do you know? So I, 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 I must live, I must walk in great love. Because my ability to not tire my brethren. <laughs> anyway, uh, in this episode, we're going to a very uh, beautiful point in the life of, of St. John the Cross, in which he enters alongside Fray Antonio uh, with, with our Holy Mother St. Teresa into the Discalced Reform. Um, and the beginning of the foundation of the friars, the first foundation of the friars, a little over 450 years ago um, at Doruelo. Um, and maybe to just sort of give an idea of where Doruelo lies in, in Spain, can, can one of you point that out to us in, a, in, a, in an imaginary map? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, outside, of, not too far from Avila. Uh, well, it would have been within, within walking distance, I think, of mm -hmm. Avila. And, um, which is kind of northwest of Madrid, mm -hmm. I guess. I think that's probably the best way to describe. Good. So uh, maybe we can talk first about um, this foundation of Duruelo, how it gets started. Um, it was chosen, a location chosen by St. Teresa uh, for the friars. Mm -hmm. Well, and it kind of came, you know, sort of like most things, it kind of fell into her lap, like she was looking for something, and then someone happened to mention there was this kind of farmstead that he had or knew about that, that he was willing to give. And so that she saw that as the hand of Providence, you know, this is, this is where we'll start then. But she didn't have anything to begin with. She said to what, she just weighed down with these permissions, but no, <laughs> nothing really to start with. She just had a, a friar and a half. Yeah. <laughs> so explain that. <laughs> well, I guess it was after the meeting with Teresa and John that, um, she went back, she was like rejoicing with her community at meeting John of the Cross, and she said that now she has a friar and a half. And it's always speculated, like, who's the half friar? Is it John, because he was known for being short in stature, or was it uh, poor Frey Anthony, uh, who she was not as like thrilled about as she was with John <laughs> yeah, of the Cross? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of them was the half friar. But knowing yeah. Teresa's wit, I think she meant both, both. of those meetings. Yeah. Yeah. So. Half-witted. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but so John's away, like he's finishing his studies because uh, he has another year of studies. And so in that time, this is when Teresa's really laying the groundwork. And so it's interesting that she herself uh, is the one who goes off to visit because, you know, she receives uh, word about this home 
she has no idea where Durarello is. No one does. Yeah. And so they set off on this journey and like they, they can't even find the place. They don't arrive until midnight because they get lost. Yeah. They're asking townspeople and no one knows where this <laughs> town is. <laughs> um, and they finally get there and it's late at night and they look at the place and they realize they can't stay the night there because it's so dirty and down. infested with vermin. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just like the beginnings of the, <laughs> the, discount, the discount friars right there. But so a few months later, uh, John John comes uh, comes to Duruelo. Uh He he proceeds for Antonio by uh, by a, a few weeks, maybe right. Um, and but when Saint Teresa comes, returns to, to the to the foundation, she finds it in a, in a little bit better state than when she left it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They did a lot of work on it uh, yeah. over that time. It is interesting that when Teresa first saw it. She was just like rejoicing and was overjoyed in this rundown, dilapidated place. But her <laughs> companions who traveled with her were not nearly as excited yeah. as she was about it. Yeah. So the beginning of, uh, of, of John entering the reform, he goes to, to meet Teresa in, in Valladolid, where she's living. And he actually lives with the, commun- the community of nuns there. And that's sort of his, his second period of novitiate in, in his introduction to the, into the reformed Discaus life. Well, yeah, I think it's it's fascinating too that he, Teresa kind of took him on. You know, she was like the novice mistress in a sense to show him this is how we we live. You know, and and he had the it was very providential because they hadn't quite entered cloister yet, and so he had the freedom to kind of be at recreation, um, hear from her directly. You know, and just be taught like what is the discalced way that she had um, that God had done through her to to great bring about this reform. Um, so yeah, so he's just kind of sitting at the master's feet, receiving you know what Teresa is giving. Sitting at the master's feet, but they they both have strong wills <laughs> in this regard, um, and have maybe John has some ideas as well that he wants to bring to the table as well. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting that then Teresa would recall later about they allude to the fact that they didn't always agree about everything, mm-hmm. uh, which is just fascinating, I think, for us to think about is, yeah, but these two very strong-willed people, they both probably had their their visions, and just to see how even the saints, they can clash heads at times in a loving way, yeah. but have real disagreements about what they envision for their life. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Well, and it helps emphasize, too, though, like just how much, again, that Teresa, we call her our Holy Mother, and but how amazing it is what she was able to do at that time period, too, for a woman, a nun, to be able to get permission to bring this reform to the friars, the Carmelite friars, um, and then find herself finding the first friars. Um, and the location. And the location, yep, obtaining all the needed permissions. Um, and then, as we know too, instructing, you know, instructing those first friars in the life. So we just really can see how that charism flowed through her in, into John, you know, who we, of course we call our Holy Father as well, but but you just see how it was flowing through Teresa. And connected to that, I think it's amazing that Teresa, it's, it's not known for sure, but it seems like Teresa herself adapted the constitutions of the nuns for the friars, mm-hmm. um, which would make sense. Like she was really the one who was, was leading this uh, endeavor. So it makes sense that she would provide kind of this legislation um, and give it to the friars for them. This is how you are to live. But it's incredible at that time, even today it would be, but at that time, to, to, I mean, there was a, a woman who was writing the legal legislation for a men's order. Yes. And just like totally, yeah, incredible. Yeah. And we know too that she designed the friar's habit that, that we still use the same design for today. Um, she would have given it to, to Fray Juan uh, 
in Medina del Campo before they left together to go to Valladolid. But it's interesting that he waited to put it on. And this sort of creates the first sort of point of, of communal life, uh, <laughs> consternation within communal life for Fray Antonio and Fray Juan. Yes. So maybe we can, we can jump to, to back into Roello at this point. Yeah, because John arrives early. He actually goes uh, with a stonemason and then perhaps even with his brother, Francisco might have gone with him at, around this time too to help like set everything up to fix up the house. So they're working on this. And John's, I think, original plan was to wait until because uh, Antonio was going to come a little bit later and like to wait till the real foundation to put yeah. on the habit. But once he arrives, he hears word of, you know, there's, there's rumors going around the town already. People are talking about the fact that these discounts are coming. And so he wants to make a good impression. So he, go ahead, he goes ahead before Antonio gets there and he puts on the discounts habit. And that's something that Antonio would never really forgive him for because <laughs> Antonio, in his mind, he was the first friar. He yeah. was the first one that he talked to Teresa, and uh, but then John was the one who first put on the habit before. before and lived Antonio, the life in a sense before too. Antonio arrived. Yeah, you can only imagine Antonio pulling up in in, in uh, on his mule on his mule to Doruelo <laughs> and, and seeing Fray Fray Juan in the in the habit and, and just being. Uh, dejected and, and disappointed yeah. <laughs> in that regard. Yeah, so um, they they begin the foundation together on November 30th of, of uh, 1568. So like I said, about almost 400, over 450 years ago. And uh, Holy Mother, St. Teresa, comes, comes to visit them later that spring. Uh, so November to sometime in the spring, she comes to check on them, right? Yeah. Um, and she is just so impressed and so uh, joy-filled at, at seeing what she sees and, and seeing the way that in which they're living the life with such, um, with, with such poverty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and she writes about that in her foundations. I think it's like, I, I won't read the whole passage because it's rather long, but she just recounts that first visit to Jorel and just how, how pleased she was. And it really gives us a glimpse uh, into the life that they were living. I never forget a little cross made for the holy water fount from sticks with a paper image of Christ attached to it. It inspired more devotion than if it had been something very expertly carved. The choir was in the loft. In the middle of the loft, the ceiling was high enough to allow for the recitation of the hours, but one had to stoop low in order to enter and to hear mass. There were in the two corners facing the church, two little hermitages, where one could do no more than either lie down or sit. Both were filled with hay because the place was very cold and the roof almost touched one's head. Each had a little window facing the altar and a stone for a pillow, and there too, the crosses and skulls. I learned that after the friars finished matins, they did not leave the choir before prime, but remained there in prayer, for their prayer was so deep that when it came time to say prime, their habits were covered with snow without their having become aware of the fact. What I love about this this period too is, um, you know, her first impressions of everything and, and the vivid memory she has uh, of first encountering these things. Um, she's not writing this directly after the experience. So this is, she's writing, you know, several years later, mm-hmm. but still the, the great, uh, the great imprint that this mm-hmm. memory had that she was able to describe it with such, with such vivid detail. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it shows too, like just how necessary it is to have this strong spirit at the beginning of, some, of something like this, like this whole movement that 500 years later, more or less 450, uh, here we are today wearing the same habit, you know, trying to live the same life that was in seed form in Duruelo. And, um, but just, yeah, just how necessary those foundations were so that something could 
grow from that and how powerful that grace had to be. Yeah. Yeah, and Teresa goes on, she even talks about the, the kind of the ministry that they did in the surrounding towns, how they would go out, you know, because this was, this small town was basically in, I mean, it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so, they, uh, you know, they'd leave in the morning, they would walk, go out and preach at the surrounding towns where there weren't priests to provide that kind of catechesis and then come back to the monastery in the, in the afternoon or evening. So she was very impressed with the, the life that she encountered there. Um, which she would maybe change her mind a little bit later. But, yeah. <laughs> she was very happy at this time. Yes. Well, I love the the little vignette that, that she mentions for Antonio. We get a little sense of his scatterbrainedness or sort of uh, his personality because he, he shows up with so little but happens to bring five clocks yeah. to this tiny little, you know, shack. <laughs> but uh, they wanted to keep an orarium very strictly, or, or at least Fray Antonio wanted to do this very strictly so he thought that he needed this many this many clocks in, in the in the in Duruelo. they don't have pillows or mattresses yeah but, but they have five clocks yeah, <laughs> yeah so um it's interesting too that the Duruelo, uh it doesn't last for the entire uh period you know they, they move on pretty quickly to to other foundations but um, I mean, they outgrow the facility yes. very, very quickly. Very this very small quick. little tiny bedroom, only two hermitages, or this with only two two places for two friars, really. Yeah, yeah. It was only about a year and a half, I think, before they moved. Um, the place where that, yeah, Indurarella was not the best house, and also not the best uh, area as far as I think it was. It was being it was known for being like rather damp and kind of moist and just mm. not healthy. Mm. Um, so they were actually offered people in that area were obviously impressed with them because they were offered. Uh, a church and they built a monastery beside the church so um, they were offered something much as they were growing to grow into. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well if I could just say too just how the people accepted them you know there's so many religious at that time and people knew religious I mean there are monasteries everywhere different groups and even different reforms but something about these discalced friars was very striking to people and they were like wow this is something different you know and and I think it just shows to how John's spirit and what God was doing in him um, and those ideals he had, he was able to carry into the life, you know, and, and kind of make that kind of impact with their prayer, you know, deep prayer hours, you know, the two hours that we still do today, they had that there, but then their own time of prayer after that, of the silent prayer, um, having their apostolate too. So they, it was very aromatical, but at the same time, you know, very evangelical, but just, there was something new that really struck people's imagination and then started bringing people to want to join, Yeah. you know. Uh, there's a, a famous story uh, when Teresa comes to visit them about uh, the, their footwear that I think is, is nice. we, can't, mm. we can't skip that. Uh, it's a great vignette. Does one of you want to share that? Oh, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that she, she, um, she was a little bit nervous by some of the austerity that she saw. You know, she, she thought that this might, uh, this might push them in a direction that would maybe scare people off who could be very good discalced Carmelite friars. And the, one of the things was that they walked in barefoot and it was, you know, in the winter, like you said, it's cold there. The winters are stronger even in that part of, of Castile. Um, and so she made them promise, you know, that you have to wear sandals. <laughs> you can't go around barefoot. Yeah, and we even see that put into their early constitutions that um, basically that the idea was that they were supposed to go barefoot except in the cold. Mm-hmm. And it's like that was listed because Teresa, uh, Teresa's insistence. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. she didn't want she didn't want her friars dying. <laughs> yes. 
She knew they needed to take care of themselves in order to carry out this mission given to them by God. And, and she seemed to have no problem with the, the moldy bread for dinner <laughs> and uh, boiled cabbage and acorns for feast days. Feast days, yeah. That's, that's, uh, yeah. yeah, we see uh, the poverty that they would have suffered from t at times and then also other times when they were really um, blessed by the generosity of people around them. Yeah. So we know that they eventually make their way to Pastrana, where, where John serves as a novice master for a time, and then to Alcala, um, you know, not too very long after that, uh, where they begin a student house. So you can already see the growth in, in the amount of men coming to, to join the reform for the need to have these stages of formation uh, along the way uh, to, to bring more and more men into the, into the, into the reform. Yeah, it's amazing to me. Like that was one thing that strikes me sometimes reading back over this stuff is how quickly it grew. Because yeah. um, it went very quickly from just being these two friars to like having several monasteries within mm. a short period of time. And John went from being at the very center of it all to being, I mean, he was he was a student master. He was a, a novice master for a time, but um, it just, yeah, it just grew beyond him yeah. pretty quickly. And you can see where his gifts lie too in that. Like he, he was formator, you know, he was kind of the spiritual heart of the reform as opposed to maybe, you know, always being in charge or making, you know, administrative decisions. Um, he, he definitely, I think, was much more at home as, in, as a formator. That's actually a good point because I've noticed this later on in uh, John's life. Teresa herself at one point recommended who she thought should be elected provincial later on of the discalced and she doesn't recommend John of the Cross. Mm. It's very interesting because she highly respects John, but you can see how God has, gives us all different gifts. It's like, I mean, St. Paul says, right? Yeah. He talks about some people have gifts of administration and others don't. And it doesn't mean you're, you're not a good holy person or a saint if you don't have a certain gift. Yeah. Um, but we all have these different gifts. And it seems like John had like a great gift for like reading souls and directing people and mm. forming people, but perhaps he just didn't have as much like that gift for administration. Yeah. So we know that around this time, Teresa uh, receives a very difficult position. Uh, she's sent back to the Incarnation, the monastery where she began her life as a nun and eventually ultimately left in order to start the reform. She's sent back there to be the prioress. And uh, it says a lot about her, her love for, for Frey Juan because she wants him by her side and helping her with this, yes. her, with this, this tall, this tall uh, uh, difficulty. Yeah. that she's going to encounter. Well, you think, yeah, the, just the amount of nuns, the way it, the lifestyle is very different there, where she originally was. You know, she goes back to where she originally 150. was. 150. 150 nice. versus, you know, 13 that she was prior of at, uh, at San Jose. So, yeah, just the, what that's going to take in terms of, like, what she, the spiritual improvement she wishes to bring there, um, it's going to take someone very special. And so she knew, yeah, like right who to go for. And this is such a, a big task for her because it's, she didn't ask, she didn't want this. Yeah. And at the same time, the nuns in Avila, they didn't, in, at the incarnation, they didn't want her. They didn't choose her. Uh, it was the, the, the leaders of the, the, in the order that or told Teresa basically to go back to the incarnation. Yeah. So imagine how hard it would be to go back to this place. People who kind of saw you as a traitor almost leaving the monastery and now you're put in charge of them yeah. and it's but you see in both John and Teresa when they're there together they're like the way that they slowly win over the hearts of those mm -hmm. nuns mm -hmm. uh, to bring about like a, a, a fruitful conversion yeah. and with great difficulty comes great graces uh, for both of for both St. Teresa and St. John uh, in this in this time this period together we know that um, 
that Holy Mother St. Teresa that sort of comes to the experience of spiritual marriage while she's prioress of the Incarnation. We know that during this time that Fray, Fray Juan, St. John the Cross, he experiences a vision of Christ on the cross that has become very famous. It appears here on the, on the cover of, of our edition of, of the Collected Works of St. John the Cross and is adapted by um, artists throughout the generations, including uh, Salvador Dali, his famous, his famous uh, painting of the crucifixion. So these, these graces uh, occur during this period at the Incarnation, and I think that that kind of goes to show uh, the great gifts that God gives to us, uh, especially to his, to his beloved, that uh, he wants to share with them in the midst of, of great difficulty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, that is a, it's something very helpful to remember too, because we can often be in a position where maybe we don't have as much quiet or solitude, like probably both of them would have enjoyed, you know, being in that assignment, but that's where the greatest graces did happen. And so in, in unfavorable circumstances, you know, we can still be confident, like, that's where we're brought to sometimes new levels that we could never foresee. We also see the beauty of, uh, of holy relationships mm. uh, and how John and Teresa were really like building each other up during this time. Um, I mean, they, lived, they were there in Avila together for five years, but um, it's, it's estimated that Teresa was probably away for about three of those years traveling, f forming new foundations of new monasteries. So, um, but this is the only time in their life that they had regular personal contact yeah. and would have like lived close by and like yeah spoken often so I uh, can imagine like just the great uh, I mean we can only speculate unfortunately but the great impact it would have on both of their lives well, we know also through a, a conversation they were having on about the Trinity yeah. that both of them go into ecstasy uh, <laughs> right. in that moment so there, there's one sort of one sort of uh, you know postcard uh, of, of picture of, of what what some of their conversations ultimately, you know, led to building them both up in in regard to love for God and, and experiencing these these great these great graces. Yeah, I think there was a someone walked in into the parlor and they're both kind of levitating <laughs> off their chairs. Um, at least that's the the tradition, you know, that's portrayed in paint. Um, but um, but that you can see, I think, too, later on in their writings. You know, I mean. Teresa in Interior Castle, there's certain aspects where she says, I learned this, you know, and I didn't know this before, but uh, someone helped me see this. And there's a lot of speculation that that was John, and that was during their time where she was able to kind of get some things straight in terms of the interior faculties and kind of the way the Spirit moves in those ways. And, um, and then with John as well, you know, when he talks about the grace of the foundress, the, the flaming dart and the living flame of love, you know, where... So much of that was through his experience of talking to Holy Mother and so many of his experiences um, that he would write about later quite possibly came from her, you know. And it's during this time where he gains a real clinical sort of understanding of the supernatural life, both mm -hmm. as his role as a confessor for the nuns at the Incarnation, but also as a, uh, an exorcist yeah. uh, in the area. And we, we have various accounts of, of ways in which he was able to help people who were suffering a great deal at the devil's hands. Mm -hmm. So during the time that John was living at the Incarnation, he actually wasn't living in the Incarnation. He was living with the, the Kaust friars in Avila and was commuting, you could say, to the, to the Incarnation to work with the nuns. But something happens where this becomes no longer tenable, and he actually moves to a, you could say a chaplain's quarters within the grounds of the Incarnation, uh, La Torasia. And, she, and, and uh, John, in this period, um, we begin to see some of the tensions mounting between himself and the other Calst Carmelite friars. 
Yeah, I would imagine even at the beginning when John moved there, he wasn't on great terms with some of these friars because, again, he, he left in order to, to form this reformed house. Um, but I think at first he, you know, he lived with them and it was probably okay. Um, but as I think he won over the hearts of the nuns at the Incarnation, originally the, the nuns at the Incarnation, they didn't really want anything to do with John or, or Teresa so much. But there's a great story of uh, John hearing, uh, hearing the confession of a nun, and she, she, doesn't, she only wants to confess to one of the Calst friars. And so she asks, are you Calst? And, you know, they're in the confessional, so they can't see each other. And so John, he just takes this... His, his scapular, his habit, and like puts it over his feet and says, yes, I'm Kels. <laughs> and uh, then, then she, he hears, his, hears her confession. But slowly John begins to build, build these relationships of trust, and he becomes really sought after by the nuns. And I think as that happens, uh, the Kels friars become a little more jealous because suddenly they're not desired anymore by the nuns. It's John that's desired. And so that, along with so many other complicated issues that are happening throughout the order, just cause this tension, like you said. Yeah. And eventually, John has to move out of that monastery. He can't live there anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's great. Teresa builds this, like, provides this, like, quarters for him and uh, another friar to live uh, on the property, actually, of the yeah. Incarnation. So that's just beautiful that they were living in such close quarters yeah. during that time. Well, and it's neat, too, because it, it opened him up, too, to be able to do some other ministry. And, and I think it's a good thing to keep in mind that, like, even though he was always going for, you know, the contemplative life and very devoted to prayer and silence still, but he, of course, was hearing confessions now and doing a lot of spiritual direction, but he even saw some kind of like some youth, you know, in the neighborhood that he started catechizing and they, they became very devoted to him. And, and so he, he had an impact on the lay people too around him. So it wasn't like he just kind of stayed in his cell all the time, you know, he discerned how he was able to, you know, live that contemplative life, but still be very open to the needs that he kind of saw around him. So ultimately, these tensions grow and grow uh, to the point where we'll discuss in a future episode where he's, he's ultimately arrested and, and kept in confinement in Toledo. Um, but it's a very complicated and nuanced sort of series and sequence of events that happens. Um, but maybe just to give a short little snippet of, of how of how uh, everything sort of came to a culmination. Yeah, it seems like there was, there was a lot of confusion over um, yeah, who was the, the lawful authority in all of this. And so there seemed to be like, there's one group uh, under like a nuncio or visitator that was like placed under the Pope. And then there was also the, the general of the order and both thought that they had the rightful authority and so there was just a lot of tension involved in this and a lot of confusion. So John thought he was being obedient to his superiors, who he was supposed to, but also uh, the, the Calst friars at that time saw John and Teresa as being kind of disobedient to their authority. Mm-hmm. And so it was all very confused. I mean, yeah. And so even um, before the like famous imprisonment of John, he's put in prison uh, <laughs> one time and right away the nuncio intervenes and like re- makes the friars release him. Um, but you can just see all of this just like, yeah, it's like a boiling kettle. It's, yeah. it's getting so tense. Well, they even had to put guards up in front of the little house, you yes. know, some of the lay people in the town that the started keeping watch because they were afraid that he might get sequestered. Right. Yeah. So we'll, we'll leave it at that cliffhanger, right? We'll, yeah. <laughs> the boiling kettle. The boiling <laughs> kettle and, and, and will it overflow and, and all of these things. Um, for next time, but I think that really gives a, paints a great picture 
um, of, of what was going on and, and what ultimately led to this, this ex extremely influential moment in John's life, his imprisonment, uh, which we'll talk about, I believe, next time. Um, if you want to untangle the webs of, of all of the, the turmoil that was growing and, and, and what led to this, this, this bubbling kettle, I recommend a, a recent release through ICS Publications uh, in Context, uh, written by Father Mark O'Keefe. OSB. It's a great, uh, kind of untangles a lot of the webs and gives a real clear picture of what was going on and all the nuance involved. Um, so if you've always wondered how, how the, the tensions amounted, it's a great resource to turn to. And for other things regarding what was going on in Spain at this time um, when the reform was occurring. Great. So we thank you for joining us this week, and we'll see you next week here on Comocast. Thank you and God bless. Hey everyone, Brother Pier Giorgio here. Thanks for checking out this episode of CarmelCast. If you want to hear more of us, don't forget to click subscribe. Also, be sure to click like if you enjoyed this episode, and maybe even leave us a comment. We post discussion questions down below to get the conversation going. Want more information on Carmelite spirituality and the Discalced Carmelite Saints? Then you'll want to check out our website, www.icspublications.org. There's a link in the description of this episode. From here, you can see all our current promotions and access our complete catalog for the writings of St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Therese of Lisieux, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, and St. Edith Stein. If you want to stay up to date on all our promotions and new titles, then be sure to add your email to our email list. There's no better way to stay up to date on the latest Carmelite publications. Thanks for joining us, and may God bless you.